Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to today's briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, it's the last day of September, the first day of the 2010 uh, election recess, and uh, depending on which crop you're talking about, it's uh, harvest time or just about to be. So this is a perfect time to talk about biofuels policy. Um, and... Uh, just a couple of things that we had on the registration table you might have picked up on the way in. Uh, there are a number of items that uh, our friends at Friends of the Earth brought along um, about some of their advocacy work uh, on these issues. Uh, we also had an op-ed from Harry DeGorder here uh, called the Ethanol Tax Credit. It's worse than you think. and it. It lays out some of the problems uh, that he's going to talk about today with the ethanol tax credit um, going beyond the, the recent CBO report that a lot of people are aware of. Uh, there's also the Green Scissors 2010 report. It's a great resource and includes more than $200 billion in cuts to wasteful and environmentally harmful spending. Um, this is a collaborative project between Friends of the Earth, uh, Taxpayers for Common Sense, um, Public Citizen and Environment America. Environment America. Um, right. So, um, passing that out as an informative piece, Cato uh, agrees with many of the spending cuts, to be sure. Um, some of the tax issues, uh, we have a slightly different perspective in terms of, um, you know, getting towards a capital neutral tax policy, but... We'll leave that for another day. Um, but we do have a project called Downsizing Government. You can find it at downsizinggovernment.org. And uh, that also includes a number of cuts to uh, the same sorts of departments. Right now we have agriculture, energy, and transportation up. Uh, and we don't have interior, interior up yet, but uh, I expect that will be up in the next year or so. Um, the other thing that was out there was the energy policy chapter from the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's this thing. It's a great resource for a whole range of issues that you'll deal with here on Capitol Hill. And if you're interested in getting a copy, you can see me or Brandon Arnold, who's holding the door in the back uh, after the briefing. Uh, our first speaker today is uh, Dr. Harry DeGorder. He's a professor at the School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He focuses on agriculture policy and trade issues in the context of globalization, especially the impact of subsidies and protection on developing countries. He's also a visiting fellow at the Cato Institute. He's working primarily on the economics of alternative energy in both fuel and electricity markets, as well as on the economics of climate change. Before Cornell, he worked for the International Trade Policy Division of the Canadian Department of Agriculture, and he's advised many governments and organizations on issues related to agriculture trade policy, including the European Union, the Food and Agricultural Organization, G20, the International Monetary Fund, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the UN Conference on Trade and Development, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. Perry earned his Ph.D. from the University of California at Berkeley. With that, I'll turn things over. Okay, thank you. Um, so what I want to talk about today is specifically uh, about the uh, ethanol tax credit. Kate is going to talk more in general about the efficacy of, uh, of, of ethanol in general, but I want to focus on the tax credit, and even more specifically, I wanted to use the recent CBO report, which was very prominent in the press in the last month, as, a, as a, an illustration of what is wrong with 
extending the ethanol tax credit. I am going to critique the CBO report, written, I believe, by economists, but not because I want to I want to uh, uh, single out CBO. All economists make these mistakes. And it's very, I think, very um, educational in terms of illustrating the real issues behind the ethanol tax credit. The CBO report said that the ethanol tax credit costs $1.78 to reduce one gallon of gasoline consumption. And that works out to $754 to reduce one ton of greenhouse gases. Now, the Wall Street Journal said, gee, the budget gnome said it's going to cost $26 a ton for greenhouse gases for the, the cap-and-trade bill that was passed in the House. And that was by 2019. So the point is that it's expensive. And you might ask, I'm going to critique the CBO report. Am I going to get a higher or lower number? I'm going to get a much higher number. Now, how did the CBO get this report? Well, very easily, it took the total billions of total taxpayer cost of the tax credit, X billion dollars, and divided it by the amount, the change in the ethanol consumption due to the tax credit. That's how they came up with these numbers. And this is an appropriate way of, of doing it. This is this is this is fine. Nothing wrong with that. Now, but the CBO underestimates the cost of the tax credit for four reasons. The first reason is that it ignores the ethanol consumption mandate, the renewable fuel standard. When they simulate what happens if we get rid of the tax credit, ethanol production and consumption goes down, but they forget that the, ta the mandate would otherwise kick in and retain a higher level of ethanol consumption. The second source of underestimation is that they assume that ethanol replaces gasoline gallon for gallon on an energy equivalent basis. And again, this assumption is, is not, does not reflect reality. The third reason why they underestimate the cost of the ethanol tax credit is that they don't understand that with a mandate, an ethanol tax credit subsidizes gasoline consumption instead. Now, I might want to repeat that. With a mandate, the ethanol tax credit subsidizes gasoline consumption, subsidizes oil. So you might want to stop and think about what I just said. It's doing the opposite of what you think it's doing with the mandate binding. And the fourth, and I'll explain each as we go along. And the fourth reason for underestimating the true cost of the ethanol tax credit is that the CBO report suggests that the mandate has not been binding uh, in the past. So I'm going to explain each of these four uh, costs that were not recognized and then to conclude on that. So first, the mandate will kick in if the tax credit expires. So instead of having a substantial reduction in ethanol production, if you let the tax credit expire, the mandate, the required volume, will kick in. And instead of, uh, and, and that will, if you use the same correct methodology as the CBO and recognize that, using data of 2008-2009 average of how much the uh, ethanol consumption exceeded the mandate, and projections by the Babcock report that came out right after the CBO report, and it was also prominent 
in the media in the last month that the cost of the tax credit now goes up 7 to 11 times depending on what range of numbers you choose as when the mandate kicks in. So we already have a very high number, but the number gets even higher. Furthermore, the CBO predicts that the mandate will be binding in the future. Okay, and this is, you know, that's their, everybody has the right to make predictions. I'm not going to debate the prediction, but if they're correct, then the tax credit does not affect ethanol consumption in the future. So what would the cost of the tax credit be then? It would be the billions of dollars worth of taxpayer cost divided by the change in ethanol consumption due to the tax credit. What would that number be? Well, it would be some billions of dollars divided by zero, which makes it a big number, infinity. Okay, so in that case, then, the tax credit does not replace gasoline or does not reduce greenhouse gases. Okay, the second point. Does ethanol... Um, sorry. Ethanol supply does not reduce gasoline gallon for gallon. When you produce ethanol on a fuel market, that means you have more fuel supply. If you have a basic supply and demand diagram, what happens to the fuel price? The fuel price declines. Total fuel consumption increases. Okay, we call this a market leakage effect. Or to be consistent with the literature on ethanol, let's call it the indirect use effect. Okay. And when you take that into consideration and you look at what economists normally uh, have calculated when this happens, then the cost of the tax credit using the same CBO methodology is about three times higher than what they report. This is independent of the first point about the mandate kicking in. This by itself increases the cost three times. Now, I put in parentheses, it's very ironic that the CBO ignores this indirect use effect in the fuel market where more ethanol increases total fuel consumption so it does not replace gasoline one gallon for gallon, but then has three or four pages in, in a mere 18-page report talking about indirect land use effect. And that's just another leakage or indirect use effect in the commodity market. And, and so there seems to be like, why not have some balance and talk about one that's very obvious right under your own, uh, under your own eyes in the fuel market itself. Again, I'm using a CBO report because it's in the media and it's a good learning instrument. All economists make this mistake. I'm not singling anybody out. And it's not about making mistakes. It's about how bad, how bad is the ethanol tax credit and really should we really extend the ethanol tax credit? This is what it's all about, okay? Let's, let's make it clear what we're, what we're saying. Okay, the third point is something that you really should take note of because so far our discussion has been how much has gasoline consumption declined with ethanol? That's been the discussion. But in reality, when the mandate is binding, the ethanol tax credit does not decrease gasoline consumption. It increases gasoline consumption. Why? Well, the ethanol price is determined by the mandate. So let's say the ethanol price is high because of the mandate, 
And now they offer blenders a tax credit. What are the blenders going to do? What's Exxon and I won't use BP, uh, Shell going to do? Okay, They're going to not increase the already high ethanol price. There's no incentive to do so. But they're getting free money from the government and they want to increase their market share of ethanol to get more free money. And so what they do is they lower the fuel price to take advantage of the tax credit. But the ethanol market price is held high because the mandate is binding, and so you're effectively reducing the price of gasoline. You're increasing your gasoline consumption, and the tax credit is subsidizing gasoline consumption. You can think of it this way. If the tax credit was determining the ethanol market price, what does the mandate do? The mandate is dormant. It does nothing. It's redundant. But vice versa is not true. If the mandate's binding, the tax credit is not dormant. It's not redundant. And it's not helping the ethanol market. It's subsidizing gasoline consumption. So this contradicts all policy goals, environmental policy goals, energy security policy goals, even farm income goals. The corn producer is not benefiting from a tax credit when the mandate's binding. And this is an important issue because this is happening for biofuel policies all over the world. Everybody has this quantity and price uh, policy instruments combined, mandate and tax credit. And it's also applicable to renewable electricity policies, where we have mandates called renewable portfolio standards. They, I'm getting constant uh, emails from Kate, from Kurt, about how Harry Reid's introducing the RES, Renewable Electricity Standard, which is a mandate. Okay, and we have a producer tax credit, a federal producer tax credit of 2.1 cents a kilowatt hour, and that's just one of many subsidies. So this is an important issue for renewable energy uh, in general. Okay, the fourth point is that the mandate in the past was often binding in the CBO report, like so many other economists, don't recognize that really that the mandate was binding in the past quite a bit. In the last few years even, the ethanol mandate, mandate was determining the ethanol market price, not the tax credit, which means what? Which means the tax credit was subsidizing oil consumption and not fulfilling the stated goals of the, um, the policy. Okay, just a couple of more slides. There's various implications of this analysis. One is, let the tax credit expire. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to hurt ethanol producers. It's not going to hurt uh, corn producers. And it's certainly going to save us from subsidizing uh, gasoline oil consumption. But also, we can now eliminate the import tariff on oil. Okay? Let the mandate do the work if you want. And I'm not saying that biofuel policy is a good policy. And that's not the point here. Uh, I... That's another analysis, and Kate will address that in more job. That's a different. I'm just trying to keep the discussion a very narrow sub-focus on the issue of tax credit with a mandate. We can eliminate the import tariff now because the political justification for all these years was we can't let foreigners get direct benefit of the tax credit. So we can now diversify our energy supplies and really move towards all our goals of energy security and environmental quality. So again, I want to emphasize in conclusion, this is not a pro versus anti-ethanol debate, the way I've couched it. Letting that tax credit expire is not 
a pro versus anti-ethanol debate. That's, the, I think, the most important point I, that I can make here. The CBO, and I'm just picking on the CBO because all economists make the same mistake, underestimate the cost of the tax credit. They fail to explain how the tax credit subsidizes gasoline consumption when the mandate's binding. And I am arguing that saving taxpayer money is a, prime, is, is a major concern, $31.5 billion over the next five years. But the primary concern should be not to have that $31.5 billion in the next five years subsidizing oil consumption when the mandate will be binding. Okay, let me open up for discussion on that. Okay. All right, thanks, Harry. Um, folks who are standing in the back, we have half a dozen or so seats down here in the front. Um, so our next speaker is Kate McMahon. She is uh, the biofuels campaign coordinator. Um, she leads the Friends of the Earth campaign focused on curbing the environmental and social costs of harmful biofuels and bioenergy policies and has advocated on a variety of other issues during her four years at Friends of the Earth. She also helps coordinate the work of a coalition of bioenergy advocates. Uh, Kate is a graduate of Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, where she studied environmental policy, poverty, and anthropology. She's lived in Thailand, where she researched environment and development, as well as in Syria, where she worked with the Environmental Foundation Limited. And uh, after Kate speaks, we'll uh, open it up for discussion. Uh, thanks, Kurt. And actually, I was in Sri Lanka, not Syria, but but that's uh, oh, that's okay. It was the S I E thing, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> not, not quite. Uh, so thank you. Um, so Kate McMahon, Friends of the Earth, uh, and uh, pleased to be here. Um, Thanks. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, kind of get down to the, the basics of the volumetric ethanol excise tax credit uh, and uh, talk about the overall size of it and why it's not necessary. And hopefully we can answer the question, when is enough enough? So but before we get into all that, I want to go over a little bit about what the state of biofuels are currently in the U.S. And I've got a nice little chart here. Um, and you can see that we're producing lots and lots of corn ethanol this year. Some 12 billion gallons of corn ethanol are going to be produced. We've got a little bit of biodiesel. It's, it's, it's there. Um, and essentially no uh, cellulosic. We might have uh, 3 to 7 million gallons. That's million with an M versus the 12 billion with a B for the corn ethanol. So when we're talking about biofuels in the U.S., I know that we like to talk about all these different advanced little pieces here, you know, and the cellulosic and the algae and all this stuff. But in reality, that's not what's going on. We have corn and we have corn ethanol. And that is not a good thing for the environment. So why is that not a good thing for the environment? Um, if we're producing more and more and consuming more and more of this corn ethanol, that means we need to get more and more corn. And if we get more and more corn, we need all the inputs, uh, more and more of the inputs that are necessary in order to produce corn. And so we're talking about all the agrochemicals, the fertilizers, the pesticides, uh, herbicides, all of that stuff polluting our air and water. Um, 
the Gulf of Mexico, uh, while currently under uh, duress from the uh, recent BP oil spill, um, was already kind of under duress due to what's called a large dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, where aquatic life is essentially choked out due to uh, runoff from uh, corn farms in the Midwest. And there's been lots of evidence to show that um, uh, U.S. biofuels policy is actually increasing the size of this dead zone. Um, also, lots of water used for, for biofuel uh, and corn ethanol consumption, um, not only in the irrigation, but actually the plants and where you can take the corn kernels and you make them into an alcohol. Um, lots of water used there, something like four gallons of water per one gallon of ethanol. And then lastly, and probably, at least in my opinion, most importantly, is that it's using lots and lots of land. It is not a very high-yielding biofuel crop, corn ethanol. Um, it, uh, I, I, I forgot to write down the numbers right here in front of me, but it's not high-yielding. And essentially, when you have uh, more and more land being used to produce more and more corn ethanol, uh, you have less and less land to produce food or less land for natural ecosystems. And when you have less natural ecosystems, you have greenhouse gas emissions associated with that. Um, so, in fact, corn ethanol today is actually contributing more to global warming per gallon than gasoline. So, next slide. Yeah, for some reason, we keep subsidizing this stuff. Um, so, right here, I've got a uh, kind of a list of the different uh, subsidies that are out there for different types of biofuels. Um, you've got stuff for cellulosic, you've got some for biodiesel, and they all work in slightly different ways. But today we're going to talk about my favorite uh, tax credit, the volumetric ethanol excise tax credit, VTEC. And the way that VTEC works is what it does is it says, all right, if you take a gallon of ethanol and you plunk it into uh, some, some oil, that, or gasoline, excuse me, then you're going to get 45 cents. Uh, it doesn't matter how it's produced, doesn't matter um, whether the market demands it, doesn't, doesn't matter whether what the price of gasoline is, doesn't matter what the price of uh, ethanol is, you just get that 45 cents every time that you put it, uh, put ethanol, a gallon of ethanol into a gallon of gasoline. So, next slide. So as we see that we have more and more ethanol being produced, which means that it's more and more money uh, that's being doled out through VTEC. Um, there's been proposals both here in the House and over in the Senate in order to extend these credits by five years at the current price, 45 cents a gallon. And if you take the simple numbers of how much ethanol we are uh, at minimum, corn ethanol we're at minimum going to be consuming, um, then we have some quite clear numbers of how much that's going to cost because it's per gallon. It's very simple. Um, early on uh, next year, talking about $5.7 billion and then climbing up to um, $6.7 billion in 2015. Overall, over $30 billion over five years. That is a lot of money. Um, next slide. So, but we want to save some of that money. I mean, it's $30 billion, a lot of money, you know, it's kind of a nice sticker shock there. So maybe we want to lower VTEC. I know that there's been conversations about doing that. But it's still a lot of money. Um, the, the, one of the proposals that we've been hearing is that we want to do 36 cents a gallon, and that will really, you know, save the day. But um, even if it's just for one year, we're talking about $4.5 billion. So it's still not a small uh, amount of change there. Um, meanwhile, you know, even if you lower it, um, we're still going to have uh, the ethanol production growth over the next several years. Um, and not much else changes except for 
you know, slight, slight difference in the cost, but still very, very high cost. Next slide. But what happens if VTEX uh, expires? Um, taxpayers save lots and lots of money. That $30 billion, we uh, get to spend it on other things. And uh, I'm not going to tell you how we should really spend it, but we could you know, invest in electrifying the transportation system. We could invest in truly renewable, sustainable energy sources like wind and solar. Or we could use it to uh, deal with the, the, the deficit and, and kind of balance our bottom line. Um, $30 billion goes a long way uh, either way. But other than that, if we get rid of VTEC, not much happens. Um, um, uh, there is this Bruce Babcock fellow that Harry was talking about uh, earlier. He uh, is an economist out in um, the University of Iowa, and he basically did this independent economic analysis um, where he found that at most a few hundred jobs would be lost. Now, at a cost at five to six billion dollars, a few hundred jobs is. is I'm sure that we could get more jobs out of $6 billion than a, than a few hundred. Um, positive that that's possible. Um, um, also, ethanol production is going to remain. Uh, it's going to continue to increase. Um, and it actually uh, is projected to go above renewable fuel standard levels uh, one way or the other. And meanwhile, cellulosic ethanol, it uh, continues to get its buck and a cent a gallon uh, tax credit. Uh, nothing changes there. Um, and... Uh, you know, one thing to kind of note there is the fact that you kind of actually start making it more uh, economically beneficial for cellulosic because there's not as much competition uh, between between the two um, when you remove the uh, ethanol, the the VTEC. So, yeah. So why is it that VTEC isn't really doing anything? And as Harry mentioned, um, it's because of the renewable fuel standard. Uh, renewable fuel standard, what it does is sets a minimum amount of uh, ethanol uh, that needs to be consumed every year. That big blue bar there, that's corn, and you can see that it continues to increase uh, for a number of years um, at, and kind of lasting to 15 billion gallons uh, as the minimum there. Um, and uh, you know, one thing that's, I keep on saying minimum because I feel like there's a lot of confusion about the RFS, you know, 15 billion gallons as being a maximum. I've heard that a number of times for different folks, and that's just not the case. You can go over, and in fact, we're likely to go over because as we uh, not produce as much cellulosic ethanol as the mandate requires, um, it is likely that that is going to be filled up with corn ethanol, and we are seeing that uh, happening already as uh, we're producing over RFS levels currently, and um, the uh, cellulosic is not making its mandate. So, next slide. Now, this one's uh, a little bit more... Um harder to see, so I, please excuse it. This is from a report that Friends of the Earth did with a great guy named Doug Coplow, uh, we did last year, called The Boon for Bad Biofuels, and I've got a couple copies here if folks are interested in it. Um, and basically what Doug found was that um, the renewable fuel standard, because it uh, creates a market floor, essentially a floor for the amount of ethanol that and, and other biofuels that need to be consumed as a result of the mandate, um, that it's actually acting as an indirect subsidy. So um, 
you're still going to be getting um, financial benefit to the ethanol industry, whether or not you have uh, the subsidies in place or not. Um, except for instead of these uh, costs being borne to onto the taxpayers, they are instead put onto the people that are uh, uh, buying and selling um, ethanol, whether it be the, the oil industry or actually uh, consumers of ethanol. Um, and that's all I kind of want to say about that, I guess. So lastly, um, just kind of going back to one of those slides early on and just kind of trying to, you know, point out the fact that um, if you look at the early 2000s, we really weren't producing a lot of ethanol. And that's where we just kind of had the tax credit as being the, the driver of, of ethanol consumption. And then, you know, things kind of tick up. We start talking about how we need to get off of oil and we want to, uh, we see advertisements start going, go yellow, and all those pieces, and it goes up a little bit. But then the exponential growth only really begins when you start having the renewable fuel standard uh, come into play uh, in 2005 and 2007. So just kind of, you know, showing yet again that ethanol growth and ethanol production is not really tied to the tax credits. So next slide. So lastly, um, what can Congress do? And uh, actually, um, uh, I'm asking you to do nothing. Um, expi expires at the end of the year. Um, just let it expire. Um, DNR on, on VTech, and that's all uh, I really wanted to say. So I'm happy to take questions, or um, if folks want to... Um, talk to me after, that's great as well. Thanks so much.